0: Wow, um, the Holy Spirit has been here today. He still is here. How, how do we respond to that? Um, let's let him transform our lives as we look at the Word of God. I think that's the way to um, respond to this. Last week, James got, uh, James Lumley preached on James, and he got in my excuse nice and early. He said, James is difficult. Actually, I want to up that one. I think it's difficult in more than one way. We've seen... It can cut through, what he says can cut through any of the nice barriers he's put up where we want to defend bits of our lives that we'd rather God doesn't touch. At the start of this last bit of the book of James, can I ask you, can we lower our guard today? Can we let God point to areas of our lives that he would like to perfect? And then when someone's explained a certain section of James why he starts suddenly talking about this particular topic and how it does link to the last thing he said, and how it fits perfectly with the teachings of Jesus, um, of Paul, and the rest of the Bible, I then find myself thinking, oh, this isn't that difficult after all. It's quite simple. And then I get a prompting. Okay, you understand, it seems difficult again. It seems really hard. Even if it is hard, Can we agree to put into practice what God is saying today? And can we put it into practice today? Back in chapter one, we saw James introduce two massive themes that run right throughout this entire book. The first of those is our response to trials and to suffering. With patience, which leads to steadfastness, is that our response to that has to be by then turning to prayer. Asking God for help. Prayer that we would have patience. Prayer that our character would be transformed so that we are able to deal with the trials and the sufferings that life throws at us. Without prayer and God's help, we'd have no chance in overcoming all of that stuff. James revisits both of those themes in chapter the theme of prayer. But not now, just for ourselves, but for others. I will read out bits of this passage as we go through rather than doing it all in one chunk at the start. So for now, I'm just going to say, is anyone amongst you in trouble? Let them pray. It's worth noting that before James talks in this passage in James 5 about praying for each other, prefers to praying when we ourselves are in trouble. Before we're meant to help others, he talks about us helping ourselves and praying for ourselves. There's two mistakes we can make with this. Some people miss out the praying for themselves bit because it doesn't seem holy enough. Others miss out praying for other people, and they're kind of not being holy by doing that. Actually, back in us, the testing of our faith, leads to steadfastness. And the effect of steadfastness is that we should be perfect and complete. Lacking in nothing. God wants us to develop in godly character. He tells us to pray for help in this. Calls us to help others. Now, salvation is the greatest miracle. And the biggest event that can happen in anyone's life. In the Great Commission, we are called to go and witness to others, to bring them to salvation, as demonstrated in their baptism. But the Great Commission also instructs us to make disciples and to teach them to observe is isn't the end of the story. God wants us to be discipled. He longs for us to be mature. We need to work on this. The church helps us in this, and God will accomplish this in us. Just take a few seconds to imagine the type of person you would love to become. What is it that you need to work on by getting help and people to pray into your life? We're told here that the prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. Does that mean we've got to then wait until the discipling is done, until we're perfect and complete, before we then help others? No. The truth is we're going to keep on working on our character and our patience every day for the rest of our earthly lives. We'll never be finished. God isn't saying first work on yourself and being good and only then your life sorted. He's saying that from day one, from today onwards, We must always be seeking to establish our hearts, to build our character, to transform ourselves by renewing our minds in order that we will become more like perfect Jesus. God is saying that from day one, from today onwards, so to be more complete, we should be striving to be less erratic, less fluctuating, more determined and single-minded So that we can plot and then follow a course, a steady course, through the storms of life. But now, having reached chapter five in the book, James writes that we should be praying for others. Since that, for others, regardless of the wealth that they bring to the church, he's told us to love each other as ourselves. He's told us that works done helping others are a vital outworking of our faith. And then in chapters 3 and 4, he's warned us about the damage that the tongue can do and the dangers of judging others. After spending all that time teaching us, instructs us to pray for others as part of that care. God wants us to practically help other people and prayer is practical help. So as as well as saying that from day one, from today, we should be praying for ourselves to attain maturity, God wants us from today to also be practically for them. Is there anything that you could do today to help with either of those? Working on yourselves, helping others, I wonder. Looking at the whole of verse 13, is anyone among you in trouble? Let them pray. Is anyone happy? Let them sing songs of praise. James here is offering us instruction, and that's not an if. When we are in trouble, that's talking about a whole range of problems. It might be sickness, oppression, bereavement, financial problems, breakdown of relationships. Our instruction is, is to pray, and as we see in future verses, to get prayer from other people to help us. If we're of good heart, then our instruction is we need to keep on talking to him. It seems odd, but one of the potential benefits of suffering is actually that it can draw us closer to God. Even if we complain to him about what we're going through, at least we're complaining by talking to our maker. Job understood more about God after complaining. He ends up praising him. And actually, many of the Psalms begin in laments. How can this be going on? They complain to God, but having addressed God, and having considered his works and his character, they actually end up praising God as well. i that there are spiritual dangers to going through suffering. Are we going to rebel? Are we going to abandon our relationship with God if things are too difficult, even if that's just for a little time? But there are dangers to times of ease, dangers to good times as well. Maybe we think we're coping okay ourselves. Maybe we're thinking we can... James pointed out that there are disadvantages to both poverty and wealth. Again, whatever our situation is... We need to be vigilant. We need to be steadfast, even. Wouldn't it be good not to waver or fluctuate based on what's going on in our lives? That's what James has been telling us to pray for. We're urged here, really, to make use of him. And following him from what James said last week in his preach, that means we are being active in steadfastness. We're not being passive by being patient. We are using the experience to make us better. Isn't this easy, though, to overlook on a Sunday morning when people are so busy trying to fix projectors and that sort of thing? If we recall the final verses from last week, they were about being completely honest at all times. Let your yes be it. So how do you respond when you've had a really rubbish Sunday morning? You've already argued before you've got to church. You're stressed and angry because work's going badly or there are money problems at home. And someone asks you, how are you doing? This is dangerous to me. When I turned up, Abby asked me how I was doing. I had to think really carefully what I was going to say, because often we say, yeah, good. Is your good really? James says the bedrock of a good church, a healthy church, is honesty and openness. That comes before we pray for each other. Before we ask for healing from sickness or from broken relationships with the fellowship, do we want to be a church in which we genuinely know that people care about us every day, about how we're actually doing, and get help when we're not doing okay? One in which we have everything in common. It's how James's church in Jerusalem was described: have everything in common, including our emotions including what's going on in our lives. Moving on to verse 14 and going from there. Is anyone among you sick? Let them call the elders of the church to pray over. The prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. The Lord will raise them up. If they've sinned, they will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power. Before we come to the point that God answers prayers, the context, context here tells us a lot about God's plan. C: that healing is not just a sign for unbelievers. It's also for those already in the church because it's a consequence of God's giving, generous, and caring nature. But I really want to emphasize who it is that James says should be praying here. Now, in two verses time, we're going to be told that we've all got to pray for one another. So please don't try to hear, James says, it is the elders of the church who should be praying. Why is that important? I think it's because they are people in the local church. People who are here week after week after week, who we know, who know us. It doesn't have to be apostles. It doesn't have to be people who are being We don't have to wait for a guest speaker from outside to come in and talk to us. And we don't have to wait until we can go to a conference... As good as those things can be, we don't need to go and get the right expert in place because we're not meant to rely on kind of an intercessor between us and God. Actually, if we share life with people in our local church and then we praise with them when stuff's going well, then through the Holy Spirit, when we pray, miracles will happen. That's saying miracles will happen today. The Holy Spirit is here. We don't need to wait for anyone else. When the words weren't working, Stuart rode behind me. He's left the room now. um, Said, yeah, Jesus is here. It'll be fine under his breath. That's the point here. Ask today. Will you help other people today? So why are the elders being called? It seems like this isn't a full church gathering on on a Sunday morning. Maybe the sickness is too great uh, for for this ill person to actually get in. The the word translated sick can also mean weary, really tired, worn out by a long or severe illness. And that word isn't used anywhere else in the uh, New Testament. Maybe this person is confined to actually lying down. People kind of get sidetracked by the issue of the oil here. All I'm going to say is it was a common medicinal agent at the time. In the Bible, it's symbolic of the Holy Spirit, who is going to be there. He's doing the miracle. And actually, a physical kind of symbol, actually, verse 15 tells us straight what's important. The symbolic oil isn't the thing. It's the prayer offered in faith, which makes the sick person well. As well as being a church which is open and honest, we need to be a church which is prayer-filled and faith-filled. In James 1, but let him ask in faith with no, no doubting. For he-. If we have prayer but not faith, we will receive nothing. But then in James 4, you do not have because you do not ask. If we got faith but we don't pray, then again, we will receive nothing. And James 4 goes on to say, you ask and you do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your... You must pray for the Lord's will to be done. If it isn't the will of God, then the answer will come from God. There isn't such thing as unanswered prayer, but the answer in love won't be a yes. Now, we do not see perfectly. God's ways are not like our ways. We can, think, we can want things which aren't wrong, which aren't selfish, which God knows with his infinite wisdom won't be for the best in eternity. Saying your will be done is not a magic set of words to put at the end of a prayer. It's an honest acknowledgement that God does know best. That if the prayer doesn't seem to be answered even if that's difficult, even if it causes masses of pain, that we will try to cling on to God's deed. And as we've experienced in our past, we try to cling on to that. We cling on to the truth that one day, when we're with him forever, then we see, then we understand, but we try to cling on until then. The most intense prayer in the Bible, I think, was a plea not to have to suffer, not to have to suffer the agony of death as prayed by Jesus. It was also asking not to suffer the pain of the father turning away his face because he couldn't look at the sin that Jesus took on himself. But Jesus also prayed, yet not my will, but yours be done. And God the father allowed Jesus to offer his life to save us. James doesn't spell all of that out because he knows happen is actually the fact that we don't ask in faith. We don't pray in faith. So James typically gives a very practical instruction. He says, I'm going to encourage your faith and then tell you to go and do it. Are we willing to trust God and try? again need to be very careful here the clear teaching of the bible in fact direct from jesus mouth says that there can be sickness which is not due to a person's sin and that was against some of the beliefs of his day paul also discusses suffering which god is allowing him to go through which is not due to paul's sin results from sin, and we should never judge people because they're sick and say it is their fault. However, Jesus always says, when he's healed someone, see, you are well, sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. And in the passage we're looking at, we've got that key word, if. If they have sinned as they lie on their sickbed. I think it's biblical to say to sin, it is possible, and James may well be talking about that here. How do we apply that? I think we all need to ensure that actually we have no outstanding matters, unresolved matters, either between us and other people, or between us and God. We need to take time for regular self-examination, Before we have the time to ponder it in detail as if sin is causing, if it's causing sickness, bringing that sin into the open and praying in faith results in the sick person both being made well and sins being forgiven. Verse 16 then emphasizes the need for resolving conflicts and asking for forgiveness in the church community. Now, we're not to the entire room. Some people have interpreted it that way. this, This fits perfectly. We're being told that when there is sin between us, we need to get it sorted. We need to ask for forgiveness. We need to be reconciled to people. And James is speaking this truth into a church, thinking about the book so far, which he is trying to steer away from doubt, blame, boasting, slander, judging others, He's even described those things as like being war and murder. You know, they're serious. And he's saying, you, you can confess this and you can reconcile and be stronger. We can resolve problems. We can keep clear accounts going forward. I, maybe this doesn't apply to you, but is there anything you should be looking to get sorted for you to do that? Now, when we have confessed our sin, when we've asked for forgiveness, it's no more. It's been paid for. We're then in a state of righteousness. And the prayer of a righteous man or woman is powerful. Another way of thinking about that is it's not the amount of faith that we can work ourselves up to in a frenzy that matters. That makes the difference here. If your faith is in Jesus, it's the power of Jesus and the strength of Jesus that matters for whether your prayers are going to be effective. Again, we need to get rid of that harmful teaching that you didn't get better or someone didn't get better because you didn't pray hard enough. The effectiveness is reliant on him, not on us. And that's shown in the next section about Elijah. Because Elijah was a human being, even as we are. Like us. He ran away. He cowered. He wanted to die. We do not have to get everything sorted out in our lives. But we do need to get saved. And we need to be moving towards maturity. Elijah was right was active in works and his works from faith was reckoned as righteousness to him. He was doing the right thing because he believed his actions followed. We're right with God if we've believed that Jesus is the son of God who died for our sins. And if we've asked him, no, it's because of his amazing love for us, then our good works will abound. We will have works from faith, as James has talked about. And we can therefore expect God to answer our prayers, just like he answered Elijah's. Now, verse 18 is telling the original language means, in prayer, he prayed. Jesus does teach us we should be persistent in prayer. But that does not just mean mindlessly... The way that Elijah prayed to be effective, what's his secret? It's that he prayed. It's just that he prayed. He simply prayed because his faith was sure. He knew that praying worked because he knew the God who provides the answer. And for me, this phrase, in prayer he prayed, also suggests that in that time of praying, he was praying What I mean by that is he wasn't just saying a prayer, he was praying a prayer. He was expecting. Now, as we get to the final two verses, last half dozen verses urging us as a church to be a caring church, honest and open, prayerful, full of faith, and one in which we rebuild strong relationships even if stuff has gone wrong. So that we know each other, not just superficially. Along with the call to be patient and steadfast, to overcome the trials that life throws at us, this has been a summary of the entire letter. This is what James has been saying. My brothers and sisters, if one of you should wander from the truth, and someone should bring that person back, remember this. Whoever turns a sinner from the error of their ways will save them from death and cover over a multitude of sins. I think we can be scared of this. Maybe we think, I'm not paid to be a pastoral church leader. I'm not leading a life group, so this isn't anything to do with me. But James would have none of that. He loves the word all. member ministry. If we are exhibiting all of those positive qualities that James has spelt out, we should be, we should have, we should do. Then all of us will be in a position to help each other if we stumble. But we say, looking to avoid that responsibility, what might be the signs that someone is wandering from the truth? I can't see inside their hearts. All I. Got to go on is, um, I guess, what they say and, and what their life looks like. But to James, those are, it's also the application of it into people's lives. If we live life together as a church, then we're in a great position to know when people are wandering from the truth because we hear what they say and we see what they do. We are called and we are equipped. To help each other when we stumble. Is there anyone here this morning that you may be being called to help? Or maybe you need to seek help and draw nearer to God by using your brothers and sisters here. Now, because this might be awkward, because this might be difficult, eternal importance of the truth. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved from death and your sin will be covered. Although that word cover kind of suggests painting over something, hiding it, so you can't see it but it's still there, I'd rather you think of it, uh, you've just got an unexpectedly large bill. Or the restaurants are charging you so much you don't know how you're going to pay for it. And someone comes along and says, gone. It's not just hidden. It is gone. That's what the Bible is saying. It's wiped out. I'd really like to finish by remembering the general truth that's expressed in those last couple of verses. They've been written by James to the 12 tribes, if you remember the very first part of this series. That means he's writing it to the Jews. Along with Hebrews and one of the Gospels, it's only one of three. Those Jews would have been reminded by the language here, especially by the word cover, of some stuff that we see in the Old Testament. And I firmly believe that God's given us the Old Testament, as difficult as it may seem at times, as an aid to us to understand God better and to move closer to him. Paul has stated it for Gentiles as well as Jews in this way. We, all of us, all people, me. In fact, when we look at the story of Adam, or if we just look at our own lives honestly, we turned our backs on it completely, deliberately, and walked in the other direction. We were sinners. We were in error. We were spiritually dead and we could not approach God. We couldn't approach the holy God because of the sin which stained us completely, which was repugnant to him. God's perfect justice, from which he cannot deviate, means we brought death on our significance of sins because sins bring death. But the way the Jews that James was writing this to would have understood it is in a much more kind of visceral and real way. He painted out illustrations. And I think that can really help us get why this is so important. So in the Old Testament, God chose a people for himself, an entire nation, to model to all other nations his character as a just but also loving and merciful God. And he gave the Jews an annual reminder of God's justice and mercy. So on this one day, only this one day of the year, the high priest, the chief priest, only out of the entire country, was allowed to approach God in the holy place. Was it easy for him? Well, he had to wash himself clean more than once on the day at a complete bath. He had to dress himself in white linen, Symbolizing purity, but linen quite cheap, also humility. Having incense, high quality, and he had to burn it to literally physically make a screen of smoke between him and the holy of holies in the holy place. Get a cover get a covering of smoke there. That was not so that God could not see his sin it worked the other way around it was because it was so that the holiness of god the awesome purity of god didn't burst through and just completely annihilate the high priest because the high priest was a sinful human the jews after a few centuries of this realized that although it didn't say so in their scriptures, they really should tie a rope around the foot of the high priest before he went in. Because if they didn't prepare themselves properly, they literally died in there. If that smoke wasn't in place, the holiness of God killed them because they were sinful. They had to physically pull the body out. That's in an illustration that God gave them so they would understand how serious this matter is. That actually that living in sin, it kills us. The chief priest, if he was Opie of the Year, if through all this he could just about approach God, he could then sacrifice a bull to atone for his own sin, the sin of just the high priest, and sprinkle it on the mercy seat, the top of the Holy Holies where, where the commandments were being kept. The proper name for that was the atonement cover. And that's what the Jews would have picked to ask, was to take two goats. Like all sacrifices, they would have been without blemish, and they have been set apart on behalf of the people. One of them is sacrificed as a sin offering to then cover the sins of the people. When the high priest has sorted himself out with blood, he can then offer blood on behalf of the people, so that God forgives their sins. Confesses the sins of the nation over the second goat, and it is sent far, far away into the wilderness. Showing that the sins had left the people completely. They weren't just being covered over, they were gone. They were wiped out. And the book of Hebrews then talks about Jesus with this context, with this background. It says that Jesus, who is God-made man, is the great high priest. He's perfect. He's sinless. So it says he didn't have to go through that first bit, but then he does make a sacrifice for all of the people. And he didn't need to repeat that sacrifice every year. It was a once and for all, Sacrifice that secured an eternal redemption. And that sacrifice was him willingly dying in our place on the cross so that we could live. Hebrews asks, how much more effective will be the blood of Christ? We've sung about that a lot this morning. One without blemish and who offered his life freely for the redemption of others. If we've accepted him, those sins are gone forever. And therefore, we can approach God, a holy God. We can know him in this life, and we can spend eternity with him. That's the context they would have understood. And again, it leads to application. If you haven't yet trusted Jesus to save you from death and cover over all of your sins, raising you to eternal life, then first of all, consider the cost James still affect your earthly life. They will not go away. But know that compared to the glory of knowing the maker of the universe, the God who created you, yet died to save you, those sufferings are a fleeting concern. I really would urge you to take that step of faith and receive total forever forgiveness today. But let's all of us be appropriate to those we know and those that we meet so that we can help turn people from the error of their ways and bring them into salvation and eternal life. Lastly, in light of what God has done for us, dying for us to break all of this, Consider what he's called us in this passage, in this book, to do today and every day. To be open, to be honest, to care for each other, to celebrate and commiserate with each other, to confess wrong for one another. James thought it so natural that works would flow from faith, he couldn't see any contradiction between those two whatsoever. So let's put that faith into practice through our actions now.